Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth, the first one for this new calendar year, 2022. We are glad that you are listening and that you are ready to participate with us, interact with us on the program. I'm Nathan Owens, and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. Wish you the best for the new year and hope that we can inform you and help you in some spiritual way uh, this year. Again, we are excited to start out another calendar year, and we want this program every week to be as effective and practical as possible. And one of the best ways that we can do that is to get your input as to some topics that you would like discussed. If there's something that maybe you personally would like discussed, maybe a family member you think would be beneficial for them, maybe a coworker, maybe it's just something you hear discussed in society, in the workplace, or as you're walking down Market Street here in Antigua or on your island, or maybe you're not even in the Caribbean. Maybe you're listening from the UK or the other side of the world. We are honored that you are listening to the program, and we look forward to your input this year on topics that you would like discussed. Pastor, before we jump back into our topic of the Holy Spirit that we were discussing in the last episode of last year, we have a question that has come in. came in right at the very end of last week's program. How does a believer know their spiritual gift? This is a question that we are probably going to address in the process of dealing with the Holy Spirit when we talk about spiritual gifts, but I think I would just like to make some general comments um, along this line. Uh, the first thing that is important, if you look at Romans twelve three, 3, uh, Nathan, if you just read that for just a moment. Romans chapter 12 and verse number 3 says, For I say... Though the grace given unto me, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. I'll read the next verse. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office. Yeah, I'll read the other verse as well, following. So we being many are in one body in Christ. And every one members of another. I'd find another verse after that, please. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy, according to the proportion of faith. The, the point that I'm trying to make here is that uh, clearly in the context, the Apostle Paul is dealing with gifts. And one of the key things that Paul calls for us is to have a sensible estimation of our spiritual ability. He said we must not think of ourselves higher than we ought to think. So Paul is saying that we need a proper appraisal of ourselves in relation to our gifts. There's some people who 
think they've got certain gifts and they just don't have it. And that's why Paul is saying don't think too much. In other words, you must avoid being too conceited and too haughty. And you must, on the other hand, uh, also avoid being what you call self-denigration uh, of yourself and not look, think, have a proper opinion of yourself. So Paul is saying to think soberly, which has to do to think songly or sanely. That's the first thing that Paul emphasizes when it comes to these matters of spiritual gifts. So I would say to a person, um, proper appraisal is, is one thing that is needed. And I would suggest um, a few things uh, in relation to discovering your gift. The first one is that if you want to know what your gift is, you've got to know what the gifts are. It's very difficult to, to know what a rhyme stone is uh, if you don't know what other stones in comparison to that. So the first thing you need to do is to perhaps do a study of the biblical gifts mentioned in the scriptures. And you find that uh, in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, and then Corinthians chapter 12, you'll find that these are the three passages that give you a profile of the, of the biblical gifts. And if you were to take them and add them up together, you see that there are 19 different gifts mentioned within these three chapters. So it's good to be at least to be able to look at what these 19 gifts are because you're trying to discern whether or not you have one of these gifts. So, But if you don't know what the gifts are, how would you know exactly um, where your area of giftedness is? So I think the first thing is to try to uh, study the gifts, look at the gifts, try to understand what it means, what these mean, and then you would have at least some kind of a backdrop to help you to evaluate your own self in relation to these matters. Um, the other thing is this. I think that while you're searching to find out what your gift is, uh, I would suggest you to begin serving uh, in the area where there's a need within your congregation, within your church. Uh, If there's a need, it means that there's someone to meet that need, and someone in the church would be prepared to have that gift to, to work in that area. So if you see there's a need and it's not being filled, that should be at least a consideration that maybe you are gifted in that area to meet that need because God matches the needs of the church, to the, the gifts to the needs of the church. So I would think that's one thing. So start serving in the area. You may not be sure this is exactly what he wants you to do, but at least there's a need here and it's not being filled. You begin to see if you can fill that need. And it's important uh, in doing that for for people to help to evaluate uh, you know, knowing your gift is not something that you yourself can come to a decision on. It has to have the endorsement and the affirmation of other people who observe your gift. That is why, as well, when a person said, I'm called to preach, uh, he can say he's called to preach, but the church must judge whether or not he's been called and given that gift and that the church uh, ordains him. But he doesn't ordain himself and become a preacher without the church members feeling that this is exactly. So by observing you uh, in that capacity that you're serving, uh, people might say some thoughts, say some things to you that inadvertently might lead you to understand that, hey, I didn't recognize that this and that, that I, I'm doing such a good job because I don't like to evaluate myself either. I, people ask me all the time, how the service went? I said, that's not my business. My business is to preach, but ask somebody else because I, I can't make a good judgment on that matter. I might think I, I preached a greater sermon. It might be the worst sermon. There are sermons I thought were the worst sermon. and might be my better sermon. So I'm a little bit confused sometimes when it comes to that matter. But it's, it's important to have other people to affirm that this is how you... The other thing is, uh, what's your interest or desire? Uh, it's interesting, if you look at uh, 1 Timothy 3.1 and then uh, Corinthians 12.3, 1 Corinthians 12.3. 1 Timothy 3.1. 3, 1. 3.1 says, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. And then look at 1 Corinthians 12.3, I think it is. 
Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking of the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy That's Ghost. That's 1 Corinthians 12.3. Okay, I have, a, I have a solid reference there. But in, in uh, Corinthians 12, it has to do with the matter of desiring, again, desiring certain gifts, the better gifts. The point I make here that both in First Timothy 3.1, Paul is saying uh, if a man desires the, the office of a bishop, he's not sure he's to fill that office, but he has that desire. And uh, in Corinthians 12, I think it's maybe 30 or 31 then, that Paul talks about the fact that uh, pursue or seek the better gifts. Desire the better gifts. So I would think... Yeah, it's verse 31. Yeah, read that. But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Yeah, to covet is a desire, and the same idea is here. So I would say also as well to see what's your area of your desire. What do you, f- uh, from your knowledge of yourself, from your interests in, in, in terms of the ministry, in terms of the, the work, the church where you are, where, where do you find that you have a, a real interest in? in? Uh, that may be the area of your giftedness because it's, it has to do with your desire. And the, Paul is linking desire with office. He's also linking desire with gifts. So I am just would say to you, you, you know yourself better than anybody else, what I really would like to do, uh, if I could do it, uh, that may be an indication that, that is how the Lord is leading. And that. The other thing I, would, I think is very important is personal surrender. Uh, Romans 12 1 it's no use asking God what your gift is and you're not willing to surrender when he shows you that your giftedness what's the point of telling you that your job is to teach Sunday school but you're you just don't have that you're not in other words you only want to find out to find out you want to only want to find out to decide if you're going to do it if you like it that is not the biblical approach the biblical approach is that you surrender to God God I'm available uh, as long as I discover my area of giftedness, I'm prepared to work in that area and get involved in that area. And I think that personal aspect of surrender is is, is crucial. Um, the other thing is that if you're doing something that you're not too sure is God's will, uh, but you find as you go on, you're improving and you're cultivating that gift because you've got to cultivate the gift. A gift is, is there, but you still got to hone the gift, etc., etc. And if you find in the process you didn't like it at first, but suddenly you find that it's beginning to seem as though you're getting a hands-on on it and it's beginning to develop a, a liking for it and an inclination for it and a, uh, 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 you develop the acumen to do it. That may help you to lead in that direction as well. And then the other one is this. Do you find delight in in doing what you're currently doing, or what you? And does it bring great pleasure uh, with you when a member of the body is connected to the head and functioning within that aspect? It, it tells you quite clearly that this is where this person fits in. So that that really is bringing you delight. That this is what you're doing. Uh, it really uh, creates that interest. I think that would be another uh, indication. And uh, the last thing I would say to you um, is the matter of allowing. Uh, the discernment of others to be the crowning confirmation uh, of, the, of how the Lord seemed to be gifted you. Um, there are examples of that in, in, in the Bible. Uh, if you look at um, 1 Timothy 3.10. First Timothy 3.10 says, And let these also first be proved, 
Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Yeah, the point there is that you evaluate the person as they're working. And who does the evaluation? Those who are the church does that to decide whether that person is. So the idea is that let that uh, the congregation help to discern and help you to, to, to discern that, hey, this is your area of giftedness. The other significant one is in Acts chapter 4. We read of uh, Barnabas being the son of consolation. Uh, he first of all he told he sold a piece of land and you had somebody uh, a couple trying to imitate him and later on they said that he was called the son of consolation uh, and again you remember that uh, in the case of John Mark the Apostle Paul didn't have the patience to work with John Mark after John Mark left him in Pergamon, and Pamphylia and went back home to his mom uh, Paul said you know this guy is not suited for missionary work but we are told that there was a contention between Paul and Barnabas on the second missionary journey and the contention was so great that they decided to split and Paul took um, Timothy and went another place and we are told that Barnabas took Mark and uh, because they were related but he, he was able to encourage that was his gift but that only was demonstrated when he um, took his property, sold it, gave it to the church. Later on, he encouraged uh, the young man. And uh, that, so he, he was labeled that way, the son of consolation. In other words, that seemed to be his gift in this. So it's important for people to um, be able to confirm your gift, and that, 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 that would help. Those are just seven very quick things. Uh, we'll go into it in more detail later, but I think that that should give you a handle at least to try to formulate some kind of a matrix by which you can judge what you should how you should discern your gift there are other things but I, I thought those seven things would be very helpful at this point in time we have another question that has come in but before I get the, to that let me share the contact information if you would like to call and be put live on the air the phone line is open and available you can call with your question call 268 462 7420 or you can whatsapp or text your question to 268 7821454 or you can join us on Facebook Live go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page click on the Facebook Live video feed and then you can comment your question right there in the comment section on your device while you listen to the program and watch behind the scenes our next question says i have a question for that's truth I took a screenshot picture of the caption from Instagram which is like Facebook it's from a married couple who have both decided to part ways on mutual terms. And let me send or let me read this caption and then I'll get to the listeners' questions. After much prayer and consideration, we have decided to go into our futures separately but forever connected. We celebrate almost a decade of marriage together and a love that is eternal. There's no one at fault. We believe that this is the next best chapter in the evolution of our love. We are incredibly grateful for the life-changing years we've spent together as husband and wife. We are also extremely thankful to God for the testimony being created inside us both and for uh, blessing our lives with each other. And the listener says in relation to this, my question is, why do people make a mockery of marriage? Isn't marriage a covenant established by God? By divorcing each other and going their separate ways, it leads others whom are without biblical upbringing to mimic their lifestyle and sin. Is that correct? Look, the, the, the problem when I read something like this, to be very honest with you, I, I'm, I'm so appalled that people would profess to be believers and Christians 
and yet so deliberately violate their marriage vow, which is a permanent relationship, and do it seemingly in the name of love, in the name of Christianity. But the language that they use clearly is modernistic language, the evolution of our love and the evolution of our, our, our relationship. Um, let's be very, very clear what the Bible tells us, that we're, we're in the age of deception and delusion. Never forget that when you understand people making uh, radical statements and, 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 and quietly unbiblical statements of this nature, it sounds very psychological. It sounds very pleasant uh, to the ears of those who are listening. It might even seem quite uh, loving in a sense, and that's the deception behind the whole thing. The, the test of love is obedience. And whether we love God or, or, or not is, is, is a test of obedience to His Word. So when you have somebody deliberately going uh, against biblical truth in, in connection with what marriage is like this, clearly these people are self-deceived, they're conceited, and they're living in the world of delusion. They, these are totally people who are uh, anti-biblical, anti-scriptural. And we must not label them as believers either or Christians either. Um, I would not uh, countenance the idea that these are true, genuine people who have faith and, and trust in Jesus Christ and believe in, in the Word of God. These are people who are self-deceived in this matter. Um, uh, the Bible says there's coming a time when um, people would uh, say that people shouldn't get married. That's in, I think, in Timothy chapter 4, forbidding to be, to be married. This seems to be along that same line. I mean, this this may be the beginning of a trend, to be very honest with you. Uh, and I don't know if it is, but the language that is used here brings to mind what Paul talks about in Timothy, that in the church you'll have people who are denying um, that uh, marriage is the right and proper thing to do. But I, I have no um, other statement to make than that this must not be uh, ever conceived as, as Christian thinking, Christian ideology. This is completely contrary to the marriage vows, contrary to, contrary to the biblical concept of marriage. And people who make those kind of decisions and then post these kind of things are doing irreparable harm to, to the cause of Christ and to the uh, the doctrine of Christianity. And I I have no sympathy with people who make those kind of statements. I just think that they're deluded. I think they're deceived. And the greatest deception is self-deception. And clearly we have an, uh, an illustration of that here. But, Pastor, what about for the couple that is just in constant conflict? And conflict that people outside of the marriage see couldn't the argument be made that it would be better for them to separate and to divorce so that they aren't uh, having this bad testimony as Christians in conflict? Look, we're living in a sinful world. We have a sinful nature. And it doesn't matter what marriage you're faced with. You're always going to have conflict in marriage. At some point in time, you're going to have conflict in marriage. The thing is that the the duty of the believer is to remain true to the teachings of Scripture, remove loyal to Christ, and follow the biblical principles that govern the home and the family and allow those principles to work out in the relationship. The two basic problems in, in the, as far as duties is concerned, um, a, a wife's main duty is to respect her husband and submit to her husband. Uh, a man's main duty is to love his wife and to care for his wife in an understanding way. Those are the uh, two basic responsibilities of the wife, two basic responsibilities of the husband. All problems fall within those four categories. And uh, I, I think the way to deal with this kind of issue is to work through these problems rather than jump ship. Because when you jump ship, you're going to board another ship, 
and you're going to find conflict again with you jump ship keep on doing that uh we're here um as a uh, this is what i call the preamble to eternity uh, and we are here to live uh live out before the world the principles of scripture and uh, to live so to glorify God. We're going to have problems. We're never going to face a situation. We're not going to have problems. But we have to work through our problems. And when you have two believers who are fully committed to Christ, fully committed to His Word, there is not a problem that cannot be resolved if the two of them are willing to work on it. They have to be willing. It's not a one-way situation. They have to appear. I would say to you, if it comes to the point where there is, it's leading to some kind of violence uh, or abuse, the next biblical step would be to separate. There's nothing wrong in separating from each other if you find that uh, you just can't live without some kind of a, some kind of physical abuse. But that's the biblical answer. You could separate, but the Bible says uh, you must you should come back together. If you intend to uh, have a, a sexual relationship, you have to come back together. But you can't go outside the marriage to find fulfillment, and that's where the Bible condemns it. So um, to answer your question, Nathan, uh, problems are going to come. I don't have a marriage that never have problems, uh, and I feel that Christians can work through their problems, but they must be willing to make the sacrifice to do so. And we have got to tether ourselves to the Scriptures and our faith and our loyalty to God, obedience to Him, and to work through our problems so that we can show to the world that uh, in spite of our problems, we can still uh, survive, and not only survive, we can thrive, and we can take something that is quite ugly and make it something quite beautiful so that people are attracted to the gospel. Our next question that has come in comes from a listener, and they want you to comment on some excerpts from an article. The article is entitled, Is It Time for a New Biblical Canon? And it was written in May of this last year. Uh, a couple of excerpts from this article. For the first 400 years of church history, almost everyone had their own personal canon of scripture. And he gives a couple of examples mm. uh, of individuals and claims that uh, different ones left out the book of James or First Peter. Uh, skipping down, he says, I would argue that we have just as much authority to determine for ourselves what we find to be inspired and what we don't. For example, I'm not a huge fan of Paul's apostle, pastoral epistles. And while I appreciate what Revelation is trying to communicate to the first century audiences about the Christ and the empire, I think this book has been so misused and misunderstood that we'd be better off without it. What's more, I would com be completely happy never reading from any Old Testament book ever again. This is a Christian author writing this, or claims to be a Christian author. Maybe Isaiah, Daniel, and Psalms. I can live without those. He um, can live without what? He can live without reading the books of Isaiah, Daniel, and Psalms. He'd be fine if he never sees them again. Uh, why limit ourselves to writings from 2,000 years ago? Why not include more modern writers like C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia or Tolkien or even Richard Rohr and then a number of more modern names? Pastor, what is your thought from a biblical, not necessarily just your opinion, but what does the Bible say? Well, look, a person talking this way certainly is a liberal. He's not an uh, um, orthodox fundamentalist, to be very, very clear. He has no... 
um, he has an incorrect view of inspiration. So this is a person who does not believe in the infallibility of Scripture, does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. So we're dealing here with a we're dealing here with an apostate liberal, and not a person who holds to the fundamentals of the Christian faith. So the whole issue that he has here is the Bible inspired or not. When you say, for example, that he he he, he doesn't want to read the Book of Daniel, and he doesn't read the Book of Psalms, even our Lord Himself. Uh, quoting saying that the the scriptures cannot be broken the, the, every title so he is he is saying that and by the way our Lord quoted extensively from the Psalms mm. so he is saying that our Lord endorsed the Psalms so the attack on the Bible in the, especially the Psalms is a, an attack on the deity of Christ so he doesn't understand the implications of what he's saying uh, and and that's the problem today we're dealing with irrational people who are acting on the basis of emotions and feelings and the contemporary way of thinking, but they never thought through these things with logical consequence or logical ends. Uh, the other thing is this. A man like C.S. Lewis, he mentioned, <laughs> C.S. Lewis would laugh at him yeah. because he believed the Bible is the inspired Word of God. So he's taking men that believe in the Bible and saying that we should put them in. C.S. Lewis would never put himself or any of his writings on par with Scripture. So this is clearly a person, I think, that is liberal in his thinking. I don't know what school he's been to. I don't know what books he's read. But clearly, uh, he would not be endorsed. He'd be, he, I, would, I would label him as an apostate, uh, liberal uh, believer who does not believe in the Bible. And you cannot. And the other thing is this. So every man now becomes a theologian. Every man decides what is right, what is wrong, which book to be accepted. So we have no norms. So what kind of a church would you have if you've got 50 people in church who have said, I like Paul, uh, but I don't like Peter. So we just, I just, you have total confusion and God is not the author of confusion. Sir, you are as confused as a person I've ever met in my life. It's almost comical to believe a person can make such radical statements like this and still claim to be a Christian. So I would say to the person who wrote that, uh, I don't know who it is, you need to be saved, you need to be converted, you need to give a life to Christ. Uh, that would be my advice to you uh, as far as, because you're lost as the worst pagan in Africa or, or in Alaska or in South America or in, 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 in um, the new paganistic societies of the, the European countries. But you're a lost person. You're not a born-again believer. It's impossible to be a born-again believer and hold the position that you're holding. Can you imagine if I, I don't hold this view, but if I held that view, Pastor, and I came up to you after church and I said, I don't like sin in the Bible. I don't want you to preach about sin anymore. <laughs> well, number one, you'd be dismembered for more yeah. church. I can guarantee you that. Um, but this gives you an idea of the, the, the mindset of the modern Christians that we are today. Their, their minds have become so diluted and polluted by the ideology of our times, whether it be the postmodern thinking, whether it be evolution, uh, that they are now trying to fix, fit, fit in within the modern contemporary way of thinking. And the thing that is sacrificing the whole process is the Word of God. And once you begin to sacrifice the Word of God, there's no other foundation on which you can base morality, biblical doctrine, everything now it's a free fall where the Bible says in the book of Judges, every man does that which is good in his own sight, quite frankly. A man becomes a god unto himself. While you were talking, I looked up the author of this article, Keith Giles. thought you might be interested in knowing he wrote a book entitled The Jesus Unforsaken, Substituting Divine Wrath with Unrelenting Love. Sophisticated song in nice song in words, but a lot of quite funny inanity right there. Just just jargon, just 
uh, words that are appealing, and I suppose you open the mesmerized people using certain language. But when it boils down to the whole concept of uh, biblical Christianity, he's he's miles out of his lane, and uh, clearly he's gone into the deep end of apostasy. We have a few more questions that have come in. Thank you to the individuals who are sending in questions. WhatsApp question from Antigua. Good night, gentlemen, and happy new year to you and all those who are listening. I have three questions. Number one, is it correct to say that the thing that stands out about Jews were not the laws or their bloodline, but their faith in God? Some groups who worship false gods claim today to be the real Jews, but isn't faith in God the top thing that marks Jews as separate from other groups? Well, there are two things. Uh, first of all, um, in a sense, what you're saying is correct, because the um, Bible emphasizes that we as children of Abraham, Abraham was a man of faith. But you cannot deny the fact that the Jewish um, uh, no, Jewish race, if you want to use that term, or Jewish ethnic, ethnicity, uh, had to be linked to Abraham. The Jewish people began with Abraham as a distinct uh, ethnic group. So there is an element of um, racial identity uh, that is important to be labeled a Jew. But again, not all Jews are Jews in the sense that uh, Paul mentions uh, unless a person has faith. So there, there is a sense in which there is a physical line of Jewish people. And it's a sense in which a person is a spiritual Jew in, in the sense that he holds to the doctrines and the truth uh, of the Jewish faith. But you cannot divorce the fact that a, a, a physical Jew, uh, an actual Jewish person, has to come to the lineage of uh, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and uh, David uh, according to the, 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 the biblical genealogy. So there's an element there that there is a, a ethnic uh, linkage for a person to call himself a Jew that is belonging to the Jewish nation or the Jewish race. So I don't know if I've answered that question, but uh, there are two elements to it. Faith is important, but it's also a, an aspect to it where it has to do with a physical descendant from Abraham. Second question Is it possible that there were individual Jews who died and would not be with God in the end because though they were Jews, their hearts never believed in God. Of course. The, the, the problem with the Jew is that a person doesn't get to heaven because he's a Jew, physical Jew. <laughs> the Bible is very, very clear about that. He gets to heaven because, uh, just like a Gentile, he has his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they were looking for the Messiah to come. And that was the faith that they had that the Messiah would come. We are now looking back that the Messiah has already come. So our faith is in Jesus Christ, and their faith had to be in Jesus Christ as well. And they were looking for the Messiah to come with the Messiah has come, we look back on the Messiah has come, but they're not getting to heaven because they were born into the Jewish race. That's a very, very, Paul deals with that extensively, and as a matter of fact, in, in Romans chapter 8, chapter 10, uh, Paul talks about the, the, the real folly of it. Can you read Romans 10, verses 1 and two, one to 3, please? Those verses say, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Okay, stop there. That's his desire. There's a Jewish ancestry. They're coming through the line of Abraham. And Paul is saying they're not saved. I, my desire is that they get saved. Go ahead, read. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That's the point that Paul is making. The Jews, uh, using the law, using their traditions, using um, the blessings that God had given to them, they are trying to attain a righteousness by their own effort. There's a righteousness that God provides in Jesus Christ. So all the effort that they're doing, and the Jews are very religious people. Nobody would question that. But again, Paul says not according to knowledge. They're trying to establish a self-righteousness based on the works of the law. And that is their greatest error. They're in darkness and in blindness. But there's a righteousness that God has provided which comes by faith, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look at Philippians chapter 1 and read, I think, the first three verses, uh, four verses. Read that, please. It just came to mind with Paul, what Paul said. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3? Uh, Philipp- that's Philippians 1. Yeah, Philippians me... 3, verse 1. Read. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, I, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained unto me, those I counted for loss for Christ. Read the next verse. Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found in him, is the verse there. Yeah, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Exactly. Perfect example of that. Paul understood that he could not approach God and could never uh, satisfy the righteousness of God by going through the righteousness of the law, trying to be obedient to the law. Paul said, concerning the law, blameless. But he said, not be found in my uh, righteousness myself, but be found righteous in Jesus Christ. And that's the righteousness God has provided for humankind when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to our account. Uh, this is called justification. Uh, and that's the problem with the Jews. So uh, a person is not going to get to heaven, whether he be Jew or Gentile or anybody else, simply because he's born within some ethnic group or some racial group. There must be the element of faith uh, and put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And the next question, I can't begin to understand God's big plans, but I thought I would ask, as I'm curious, has salvation always been the same concept, just that God showed the depths of his love for us as he had always planned when Christ came to die for the sins of the world so that people like us and even some Jews could witness and or believe in him and be saved. It's very clear from Genesis 3.15, God's Proto-Evangelium, the first promise ever made of how uh, when man sinned, directly after man sinned in chapter 3, the promise is given that he would uh, read uh, Genesis 3.15 for me, please. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 reads as follows, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, 
it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Yeah, that's the first promise, that the Messiah is going to come through the seed of the woman, and that the devil uh, there personified with the, in the, um, the serpent, he will uh, bruise his heel, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And of course, we know that he bruised our Lord's heel because when they were crucified, the nails actually were driven right through the, uh, from the instep, right through the heel. That's, that, that has been discovered uh, from um, some of the things that they've dug up. So we often think that it just went through the center of the foot, but it actually went right through the heel into the into the wood. That was a, a promise that uh, the Messiah was going to come and he's going to deal with the satanic problem. But all through the Old Testament, every single sacrifice that was ever made, uh, every offering that was ever made, whether it be the uh, the burnt offering or the sacrifice for sin or the trespass offering, they were all pointing to the fact that one would come who would die. And all the animal sacrifices were just symbolic of the actual vicarious death of Christ who would come as a Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world. And then if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, uh, when Paul is arguing in, in Romans chapter 3 and 4 about what salvation is and what justification is, Paul quoted Genesis 15 where he says, Abraham believed God and was counted on into righteousness. He's explaining that uh, how righteous was imputed to Abraham because of his faith. Uh, and, and and that is how Abraham was saved. He was saved by faith. He was justified by faith. And Paul is pointing out in Genesis, sorry, in Romans chapter three and four, the same way Abraham, because he used Abraham as a case study of how he was justified by faith, he points out that's the same way we are saved today. God has always saved men on the basis of faith, and God has always loved us, and God has always in his mind from the very beginning. Uh, would demonstrate his love by sending his son but until his son came he provided a a, a temporary means of pointing out our need of forgiveness remember every time a person made a sacrifice and he had to kill the animal not the priest and he had to put his hand on the animal it was showing him transferring his guilt to the innocent animal it was all symbolic and uh you might call it the pictorial form of salvation was being demonstrated uh, to the nation of Israel until uh, finally the shadow was no longer leading, the substance came who was Christ, and that's why the Bible says he's the Lamb of God that died. But everything that you find in the Old Testament, all these sacrifices, all of these ceremonies, all pointed to one thing, the coming of Christ, his death on the cross to redeem humankind. And that's the biblical doctrine from the book of Genesis right through to the end of Revelation. The theme of the Bible is redemption, is salvation, and how God would make a provision for that salvation. Pastor, you just mentioned that God saves man and always has on the basis of faith. Sometimes we hear, even within our Christian circles, that some are given more faith or some are given the gift of faith. Does that mean that it's unfair or easier for some people to get saved than others? No, look, this is where I think that um, everybody should be rejoicing that faith is a basis of redemption. And here's the point. It's never how much faith you have. It's what you put your faith in. Okay. That's the essence of what salvation is about. So you can have little faith, much faith, more faith, whatever it is, but that's not the point. It is what you put your faith in that saves you. And this is very, very uh, difficult. Some people think that faith is what saves them. It's what is the object of faith that they put in that, that brings about the salvation. Faith has no merit in itself. 
but it's the merit of Christ and what Christ did. So if I have a little faith to believe in Christ, a person may have much bigger faith. So it's not how much faith we've got, it's what we put our faith in that really, and that puts everybody in power. Thank God it's not how much intellect you've got. How much smart you've got. No, I'm serious. Right. Think about that. They've got some brilliant people who are far more brilliant than believers. No question about that. Uh, you've got some very simple people who are Christians who didn't have the facility of going to going to college, going to school. They just had a primary education. Some of them had not. But think about that. What if God had made the intellect the basis on which people would be saved? And that's why I said we should be rejoicing that faith is the basis. Because uh, a person doesn't have a great faith, you just have to have faith in the finished work of Christ. Can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? You can know for sure you're a Christian if you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I would say to you that you should experience some kind of conviction before you were saved that led you to repentance. And once that conviction has happened, you remember the Bible said, none seeks after God. That should be helpful for most people to understand. If you have that uh, desire to, to serve God and seek after God and go after God, that's not the natural man. That's that's the person who has experienced an encounter with God. So I would say to you that it has to do with the conviction of sin, the repentance from that sin, and the exercise of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those are the conditions that once those conditions are met, uh, that brings saving faith and that brings uh, eternal salvation for that person. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. And if you're in Antigua or a nearby island, you can also join our English programming on 92.3 FM during the daylight hours. But you can also join us for this particular program on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can listen to the program, watch behind the scenes, and comment your questions right there on your device. If you have a question and you would like to ask it live on the air, you can call 268 462 7420. The phone line is open, available, and awaiting your call. That number again to be put live on the air is 1268 462 7420. If you would rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268 782 1454. Before we Jump back into our topic from a previous episode, Pastor, a question from a listener. Pastor, the government of Antigua announced today that there was just over 200 new cases of COVID. What words of advice do you have for Christians going into this new calendar year with so much uncertainty? I think all of us um, have been unsettled from the time we've had this encounter with COVID. I thought it would last a year, and now it's going on until the third year. Um, I would say to Christians, um, be take your uh, precautions. Uh, don't tempt the Lord. Uh, you know, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. The Lord has promised He'll take care of you. Don't take unnecessary risks. Um, use the mask if you have. To. I I feel discomforted using the mask, but I got to. I had a guy come to do some plumbing today, and he didn't have on a mask. And I immediately was going to meet him. I went back and got my mask. I got to protect myself. I'm not going to be so stupid as to pretend that uh, because I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian, therefore I can't become infected. I would suggest take the necessary precautions that you need to. And um, 
we all gonna live through this this this, this uh, dilemma. Uh, try to cooperate with the government as much as possible until the government begins to infringe on our liberties where we can't exercise our faith as we should. Uh, I think we should do everything to operate within the confines and the directives and the mandates that the government gives. But if those mandates come to the point where it actually uh, disrupts our capacity to worship God and to serve God, uh, it might require some kind of civil disobedience in the long term. I hope it doesn't come to that. And I think the government has been very accommodating. But let's not, let's not be so radical and uh, so uh, unthankful that we... Um, you know, become so anti-government in, in these type of things. And as, the other thing is this, Nathan, there is still so much confusion about yeah. this whole thing. I wish that the, two things I really wish about this whole thing. Number one, I wish that they would really do a thorough investigation to find out where this thing came from and find out what was done to the virus to create the situation. I think the world deserves that, honestly. I think the idea of, I think nations seem to be fearful of discovering where where this thing came from, and, and I, the other thing is this: I think there ought to be some accountability. If it is, if it did, can be shown clearly that it came from the Wuhan laboratory in in, in China, and that China had locked down and didn't allow people to travel from within Wuhan within China, but allowed people to come in. I think they're culpable. I think they should be held responsible. And for these third world countries that have suffered economic doom, as it were, I think that they are rich enough you know, to put aside some kind of funding to help the third world countries that are suffering as a result of this to rebuild the economies. But I don't think they should, if it is, can be proven that this was a deliberate act, and even if it was not a deliberate act, accidental, but yet it was deliberately allowed to spread, I think that they should be held accountable. And I don't know why foreign governments and third world countries, well, I think part of the reason is that China bribes everybody, pays out everybody, quite frankly. She's involved in so many different countries. She has so many resources. I think people are afraid of taking a stand because it might result in losing aid and help and uh, in building their bridges and building their deep water harbors and whatever else that China's involved in. But I really think those are two things. That the other thing is I think the church has to be creative in how it fulfills its ministry with this darkened umbrella holding over its head. And I really think that there's great need to, for the church to really uh, think of ways to be more creative in, in fulfilling its ministry, living within the parameters that are set by the government in terms of its mandates, but yet not allowing its ministry to be so curtailed as to not to function effectively and fulfill its biblical role. I think that is those are the three main things I'm concerned about. Thank you to the individuals who have sent in questions so far tonight, and there's still about 35 or 40 minutes left in tonight's episode, so we look forward to your interaction. Nathan, I want to say something else. Well, I forgot when we're dealing with the spiritual gifts and the how to find the spiritual gifts. There, there are some... Um, discovery. Oh, I don't know. If I'm trying to find a word. I can. Um, it's almost uh, a tools. Yeah, it's a discovery tools that um, questionnaire. Qu- questionnaire that men, uh, certain pastors and certain leaders have created that are very very helpful. We have one uh, that we use in our church that a person can fill out basically, and if they answer the questions fairly uh, honestly. 
uh, not allow subjectivism to come in. You can pretty have an assessment where that ear, person's ear of giftedness is. So I would say to the person who asked that question as well, there are ways and means, that uh, tools. Now I know that the Bible doesn't give you these, specify these tools, but remember that God gives to men wisdom. And, uh, you know, the wisdom God has given to men uh, within this church, I think, be used by God's people. That's why they write books. That's why we, we, we benefit so much from their ministries. And I would suggest that that is another tool that can be looked at uh, in terms of helping a person to discern his spiritual gift. <clears throat> now, several weeks ago, we began to discuss the topic of the Holy Spirit. Pastor, can you give us a brief <coughs> overview of what we've covered to catch us back up and get us all on the same page, and then we will continue the topic. Well, the first thing we, we looked at is why we would study the Holy Spirit at that juncture. And I mentioned, I give f- four things I mentioned. Number one, I, I thought it was an appropriate sequel to the matter of prayer because we were told that the Holy Spirit has a vital ministry to us and we should pray in within the realm of the Spirit. So clearly the Holy Spirit has a ministry in respect to prayer. Uh, the other thing is we pointed out that in a very real sense, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the uh, predominant ministry today in terms of the Godhead of concern. We mentioned the Father was active in the Old Testament, the Son active in the New Testament, but the Holy Spirit was sent directly to minister to the church. And remember that our Lord, when he was on earth as a man, lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same way he lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and did not exercise his deity in his own behalf, we are designed to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's important to understand he is the predominant uh, person of the Trinity that is the executive uh, today, operative and applying the work of salvation to the lives of the believer. The third thing we mentioned that the Bible presents the fathers in heaven and the son is sitting in the right hand, but the Bible presents the Holy Spirit is indwelling the believer. So in a sense, he personalizes God uh, in, a, in a, a much more personal sense of experience than normal. And then the other one, of course, is um, with all the emphasis being placed on experience today uh, and an existential living, living in the moment, uh, he is designed to be the comforter uh, who will be with you until the end. He will never forsake you. So the, the, the everyday life and everyday living is uh, this existential living is best expressed by the Holy Spirit being the one guiding us day by day and dependent upon him day by day. In other words, we must depend on God but the one through whom we work, he works is the Holy Spirit. So we depend on the Spirit, for example, to help us in our prayer, in the will of God we mentioned on another occasion. So those are the four things that we, we talked about. We try also, Nathan, to explain to people why um, some people are confused about the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. And we made it very, very clear uh, that the term ghost is really the Anglo-Saxon word for spirit. So when it was translated in 1611, that was the proper word. Uh, for spirit. Of course, the word spirit is the Latin word that is commonly used now in most modern translations. So I always used to, I always felt a little bit apprehensive that people who read in the word ghost uh, had this idea, some eerie kind of a spirit almost, you know what I'm saying? That I used to mm. That used to bother me a little bit. You know, why we didn't call it the Holy Spirit? But then you get to understand that when it was translated, it meant spirit. It's just that words change. But I thought that was important to make that clarity because the people might make subtle distinctions in that in that matter. The third thing that we look at is um, why the Holy Spirit 
um, why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Ghost? And uh, we, 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 we clarify that. And then we, we ask the question, why was such a neglect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, in church history? And we did mention that when you look in the church history, um, for the first 400 years virtually, there's very little mention, very little emphasis on the Holy Spirit outside the book of Acts, and that shocks us. But then we pointed out that the church was absorbed in the battle over the identity of Christ. There were so many attacks on his humanity and his deity, the church concentrated and trying to get the whole doctrine of Christ clarified. Who was this one? Was he just a man? Was he God? Was he a God-man? That had to be settled. And a lot of the, the heresies that started in the first 300 years of Christianity revolve around the person of Christ. And of course, if you could destroy the manhood of Christ and the deity of Christ, you destroy redemption. So by undermining Christ, you undermine the whole biblical concept of the gospel and salvation. And the church was defending that. And it didn't mean that they didn't believe in the Spirit and because it's all there in the New Testament. But the fact of the matter is that they were so concerned about defending the doctrine of Christ that they didn't give the attention to this whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And it was not until the the Reformation in the 16th century uh, that a great deal of attention was now given to the Holy Spirit and that's where the whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit was now expounded and it was exegeted in detail like never before uh, so the Reformation really was but the, the, the people can understand the, um, the the battle that was there over the whole person of Christ and the church was absorbing so we, we kind of explained um, that part of it um, then we talked about the why people view the Holy Spirit as impersonal, and uh, you know the Jehovah's Witness today said that the Holy Spirit is not a person; he's an influence, he's a power, he's a force, but he's not a person. And we pointed out several things. One has to do with the word "spirit" itself, which is the same word for breath and for wind. And uh, there are people who take that and uh, say, "Well, you know what? The spirit and wind and and so." Uh, breath and, and wind is impersonal so that is, is used the other thing is that um, the um, the word spirit is neuter in the Greek language puma it's a, what you call a grammatical neuter gender and there are other languages that got that the French have got uh, grammatical neuter gender of, of, and also the, the German has got that so if you don't understand what a grammatical gender is and because the word spirit is neuter they say well it can't be a person the other thing is that in the translation of the King James Version uh, you have the word itself that is used as an unfortunate um, pronoun that is used itself it should be himself and people reading that could, could come to the conclusion that we're dealing with a, a force or power or something but not a person so there are there are um, reasons why people have, have uh, reached that, 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 that conclusion and that's been very unfortunate the other thing is that you've had, um, in spite of the fact that it was during the 16th century that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit was totally expounded in a way it never did before, you do have in the uh, uh, three, or three and fourth century, you do have groups that questioned the Holy Spirit and denied the Holy Spirit was was God, etc., etc. So, um, and, and the Jehovah's Witness, for example, with the the Holy Spirit as a it as a force, that's the what is called the Arian heresy Arius is the same guy that said that Christ was the first creature that God made and uh, Arius also said that the Holy Spirit 
was the first creature that Christ made, uh, the first force that Christ made. So they have actually taken on areas not only in relation to the doctrine of Christ, but also in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's why they teach that Christ is a God, he's not God. And that's why they also teach that the Holy Spirit is just a force. So we, we uh, kind of made that, um, um, try to clarify that. And then we began to talk about proofs of the f- fact that the Holy Spirit uh, is a person. I think that's where we ended in our previous study, uh, etc. pick up with that? The How do we know that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, not just a force. Yeah, we, we uh, mentioned several things uh, last time. Uh, we didn't get very far, but the first thing we talked about is that there are certain qualities that are distinctive of, of, of personalities. And you would know if, a per, if something is designated or as a person if it has certain attributes. And the, the three attributes of personality that makes a thing a person, uh, makes something a person, or an object a person, or entity a person, or being a person, is that you must have intelligence, you must have emotions, you must have volition. That's what makes, constitute um, a personality. And we saw uh, in our study that the, the Holy Spirit has intelligence, uh, he has the mind of God, he knows the mind of God. Uh, Paul said, uh, John told us that he will guide us into all truth, uh, clearly, uh, and then also he has emotions, uh, he can be grieved, and uh, Paul talks about the love of the Holy Spirit, which is found in Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 30, and then the Holy Spirit has a will, and I think, uh, go back to Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, I think that might be the verse we ended with last time. First Corinthians twelve eleven says, But all these worketh that one in the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. And there he's talking about the, the gifts of the, the, uh, that the Holy Spirit gives. And the determinative factor in terms of what gift I have or you have it is the sovereign choice of the Holy Spirit. He does it as He wills. It is not as I will to have a gift. He's the one. And that's the folly of people trying to say today, for example, that unless you speak in tongues, uh, you, 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 uh, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Or some people even say that you're. Um, you're not saved. Um, the folly of that is that the Bible makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit wills to give whatever gift He gives. So he can give the gift of speaking in tongues, give the gift of interpretation, the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, the gift of helps, the gift of administration. He's the one that decides that. It's not something that you decide or I decide. And that talks about the exercise of His volition, His will, according to His will. So He has the marks of uh, personality. He has the attributes of personality, which are those three things, intelligence, emotions, and volition. The second thing is, Nathan, is that he performs actions that only a person can do. Uh, He does a number of things that only a person can do. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he teaches. Uh, A force can't teach. Wind can't teach. Uh, If you read that, please, John chapter 14, verse 26. (coughs) John fourteen twenty six says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send you in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Notice not only is he going to teach, but notice the pronoun that is used of him there is what? It's he. And it's significant. Remember I told you that the word spirit 
uh, is neuter, but yet when it's applying to the Holy Spirit, the word that is used in the Greek language is actually the uh, masculine pronoun that is used. It's actually in the Greek language. So uh, clearly uh, he teaches, but he also uh, guides. Look at Romans chapter 8, 14. Romans 8, 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... They are the sons of God. Yeah, led by the Spirit of God, guided by the Spirit of God. That's his ministry in guiding the believer. And that's why we, we emphasize the importance of the, of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that uh, he is a person that he will show you later that the Bible shows that he's God. But we can't neglect his ministry in relation to the believer. As we talked about prayer, as I mentioned before, and we saw that he has a vital role in leading us to know how to pray in the will of God. So we just can't prayer without uh, seeking his help so that we pray according to God's will. That's how he guides us in that matter. But certainly, uh, a force can't guide, a force can't uh, teach me, a force can't teach. But also, look at um, John chapter 16, verse 13. He enlightens us. John sixteen thirteen says, How be it, when he, the Holy Spirit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Now think of the mockery of, of talking about the wind hearing or the force hearing. When he hears, he teaches. So whatever the, is given to him, he passes on and he teaches. And that's where we know, by the way, we have confidence that the New Testament is the Word of God. Because that's the promise that was made by Christ Himself, that He would guide you into all truth. He will tell you what is truth. So that when these um, apostles wrote, we're very, very sure that it's the Holy Spirit that guided them because that's the promise our Lord made, that He will guide them into all truth. So that's why we believe also in the inspiration of the Bible. Pastor, as believers, Actually, even as unbelievers, we all, man, all have a conscience. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. So, as believers, how do I discern what is my conscience speaking to me versus the Holy Spirit speaking to me? Or do I need to dif- differentiate? No, that's a this? very good, very good question because I would say to you that if what your conscience is guiding you is contrary to Scripture, you must have some standard mm-hmm. to know which is of the Holy Spirit because He guides within. But remember, we have an enemy that is also working against us. And uh, you remember it says in the book of Chronicles that Satan moved David to number the people. You remember that? So clearly he's also trying to impact our minds. So that's where the problem comes in sometimes. And and people, you're not too sure, is it my conscience? Is this the right thing to do? Is it the Holy Spirit? There's only one way to get back to. If whatever your conscience is leading you, whatever is leading you is contrary to the word, one thing, it cannot be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will never lead a person contrary to the Word. So it's a check against a conscience. It's a check a person that the Lord told me that. Like people say that a lot of times, the Lord told me. Yeah. The problem with that, that, 10 years and then you realize the Lord didn't tell them anything. Right? So you've got to be very, very careful about that. Um, I know what people mean by that sometimes. They're, they feel that like this is what they led or impressed. So things happen, whatever it is. But I've got to be very, very leery about that. But I think the, the, the standard, the sibboleth, the, the canon by which you judge whether or not it's your, the Holy Spirit or your conscience, I would suggest to a person the safeguard is to measure that against the Word. And if it is contrary to the Word, know for absolute certainty that cannot 
be of God. So, <laughs> if it's in line with Scripture, does it matter whether it's the Holy Spirit or my conscience? Do I need to spend the time at the end of the day saying, "Okay, was that the Holy Spirit that led me to do that, or was that my conscience, kind of as guardrails keeping me in line?" Or am I? That's a very good question. Again, I would suggest to a person if you're not too sure in that matter, the right there, you 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 pray, you ask God to dis- give me discernment. Um, if it's like Jesus saying, not my will, but thy will. Lord, I believe this is the right thing to do. My conscience tells me it's the right thing to do. I believe the Spirit is leading me, but I don't want to be misled. And uh, so you ask God to somehow help you to understand, to discern between whether it's your conscience or the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That's the best thing to do in a case like that, right? The other thing is, Nathan, that um, I mentioned prayer, but it, sometimes it's necessary to talk to people who have had some experience along that line. Maybe it's a decision you think you're very, very sure about, that you, but still you're that the hesitancy. Right? You know, it may be to call up that you're doing this kind of work, yeah. right? There are people who've gone through the same thing you're going through. And you might know somebody who's got tremendous experience. You might say, you know, listen, I really feel, uh, have you ever been down this route before? What did you do? In other words, no man is a reservoir of knowledge in himself. We're not an encyclopedia, biblical or otherwise, and we have sometimes to turn to other people for counsel, especially people who have experience in those areas where we have concerns. So I think that's another thing we can tap into when it comes to those situations. You're listening to the Radio Lighthouse. The time on this Tuesday evening is 8.36. Still plenty of time for you to call in with your question. You can call one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. The phone line is open and available, and that number will put you live on the air. If you don't want to be put live on the air, but you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, send it to two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Maybe you have a question and you're a little embarrassed to ask it. You're unsure and you definitely don't want it traced back to you. Not a problem at all. When you send the question in, uh, just say anonymous or uh, don't want it referenced to me. We won't even reference what country you're from or even what part of the world based on your area code. We will keep it completely anonymous. And if you have the question... There's someone else out there that has the question also. So please send it in, and we'd be glad to help answer your questions from a biblical perspective. Pastor, how are some other ways that we can know that the Holy Spirit is a person and not just a force? Okay, uh, could we just deal with a few more of these things? I'm talking about, we talk about he has the characteristics of personality, the attributes of what a person make what constitutes a person, and we talk about the fact that he does a number of things or actions uh, that he performs and does that only a person can do. We talked about he teaches, he guides, uh, he enlightens. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, as far back as that, uh, chapter 6, verse 3, you find that he, he strives, uh, mentioned there. He's, as I'm turning there, the Holy Spirit was mentioned in the Old Testament. Of course, of mm-hmm. course. As a matter of fact, in the very first book of Genesis, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the earth. Uh, Genesis 6.3 And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Yeah, this talking about the Holy Spirit um, really dealing with man before the flood, and he was striving to restrain and constrain man. 
but that would not go on indefinitely. Man reached the point where every imagination of his heart was evil. But remember that the Holy Spirit is a restraining force. He's not only a restraining force in the Old Testament, he's a restraining force today. If this earth were to experience the removal of the Holy Spirit, where his powers which is completely unrestrained, you would see a level of crime and, and, and mayhem that you have never seen before. What holds back the corruption? of this world is not only human government but also the agents of the Holy Spirit remember in Thessalonians said when he will be taken out the man of sin will be revealed he is the one that restrains the conditions to, to that would result in this man of sin eventually rising but he controls the forces that will result in bringing that to pass but without his restraining power uh, all hell would break loose on planet earth and uh, that's his job striving restraining uh, and only a person does that um, to restrain and try to bring uh, human sin under control and try to move man in a direction of righteousness as opposed to evil so he does that as well and then in Romans eight twenty six, another work that he does another action that he does Romans eight twenty six reads as follows Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now notice that the unfortunate translation itself. itself. See, that creates a problem. And that's why, Nathan, I am the advocate of the language uh, words being updated, because Take the take a young person who has never been exposed to the Bible in this generation. He comes to passages like that, and he's been taught grammar in school. He can have a wrong interpretation. I mean, how can you say call it it himself? How how can it intercede in the first case? <laughs> right, uh, a person can only intercede, and then how can it groan? Right, uh, so clearly there, the Holy Spirit is interceding. He's doing what only a person can do, and the intercession for us is the extent where. It is it is such at a, a level that uh, it's like you trying to talk to God, but you're so burdened and words don't come out. You just you ever find yourself groaning and and and, and within etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Again, that is what what a person. So he intercedes, uh, and then um, look at um, Acts six Acts thirteen four. Acts 13, 4, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Cilicia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Notice that they were sent forth by the Holy Ghost. But if you read the book of Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter, uh, when Paul is sent out, the Holy Spirit says to the church, Separate me, Paul and Barnabas, unto the work. Uh, so clearly he expressed himself, whether this is a verbal voice or an inner voice that came within the, the body of, of leaders of the church, we're not specified, but clearly uh, he spoke, and we must take the word of God literally, and uh, again, uh, this would indicate that he is a person. So not only the personality characteristics that constitute what makes a person, but also the performance of actions that only a person can do would indicate that the Holy Spirit um, is a person. The other thing, Nathan, is that the personal pronouns are applied to him. Go back to John chapter 14, verse 17. John fourteen seventeen. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, 
but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Notice again, the word spirit is neuter. Spirit of truth is neuter. But notice the pronoun that is used there is he and him. Yeah. in both cases so clearly and this is not uh, this is in the actual Greek language itself okay uh, and then look at John chapter 16 verse 13 and 14 John 16 verse 13 and 14 says how be it when he the spirit of truth is come he will guide you into all truth for he shall not speak of himself but whatsoever he shall hear that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. In verse 14, He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Nine to eight times he is used there. All personal pronouns. And uh, that is a clear indication that you're dealing here. And the things that he is going to do, clearly only a person can do in that regard. Another passage is Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, 14. Ephesians 1 verse 14 says, Which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. It's talking about the earnest of being the Holy Spirit. He's the earnest of our inheritance. Notice the word which that is used there. In the Greek language, it's a masculine uh, uh, relative pronoun that is used there. Uh, who, really. So that, that, again, that masculine relative pronoun is applied to the Spirit, who is the earnest of our, our, our deposit, basically. So you're looking at, thirdly, that the personal pronouns in the Scriptures are applied to him, indicating that he uh, is a person. The fourth argument that is used to uh, indicate that the Holy Spirit is a person is the fact that he is associated in relation to the other persons of the Trinity as a person. Um, look Matthew 28 verse 19 Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19 go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit again you're dealing here with a level of personalities imagine putting um, baptizing them in the Father, Son and a rock or, or something, a fire or something like that. It makes no sense. Or even an organization. Or even an organization. Yeah. Uh, clearly on the level of personality, he's associated there. And also if you look at Second Corinthians 13, 14. Second Corinthians 13, 13 14, 14. Yeah. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now think of the words that are used there, quite frankly. The grace of our Lord and the, the, the love, love of, God. of God and the fellowship. fellowship. I mean, think the word fellowship, the Holy Spirit. Clearly dealing with three persons and, uh, and the expression that is used in conjunction with them, the adjective is used clearly, it, it, it's personal, right? Whether it be uh, the love of God, whether it be the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, communion of the Holy Spirit. So notice he's associated with the other persons of the Trinity on a personal level. Another one is, is Jude... Jude only has one chapter, so Jude 20 and 21. Again, you see that association with the other persons of the Trinity and the level of personality. Jude 20 and 21 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. You see the three persons there again, three different aspects. They talk to the Father, you talk to the Son, you talk to the Holy Spirit. Yep, the love of God, the, the mercy of the Lord oh, Jesus Christ. Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, that is a. Uh, and then the, one other verse that shows you this 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 level of personality. And, and look at Acts chapter fifteen, verse twenty-eight when the church is going to send a letter to the Gentile churches telling them the decision was made that they're no longer to be under the burden of the law. And this letter is supposed to be written. Notice what it said there. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Again, notice the Holy Spirit on us. Right? You're dealing with the apostles. You're dealing with the leaders of the church. They're writing a letter, and they're putting the Holy Spirit on the same level of, of their own personalities, quite frankly. So that association at a level of a personal would indicate that uh, the biblical teaching is that the Holy Spirit is a person. One other key verse, um, um, Nathan, is John fifteen fourteen. This is a very key one. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Uh, let me read that in the King James. John okay, now read 14, 16. Sorry, 14, 16. John 14, 16. 16. Yeah. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Now, you see the word another there in the Greek language? It's the word alos. And that word means another of the same kind. I was your comforter when I was here, but I'm praying if I send you another comforter of the same kind. The same way Christ performed that personal role, uh, the Holy Spirit is a person. He performed a personal role as a new comforter in the believer's life. But that's a very significant word, another of the same kind. That's the key uh, Greek word that indicates clearly that we're dealing of a, a level of personalities and level of persons and not a person and a thing, another of the same kind. The same way I was... Uh, a comforter, another comforter like me, of the same kind. Right? You're listening to the Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua, 1160 AM and 92.3 FM. If you have a question, go ahead and send it in. We have 10 minutes left in tonight's episode. Call and be put live on the air by calling one 462 7420 let me give that number to you again, 268-462-7420. Or WhatsApp and text your question to 268-782-1454. Yeah, one final um, argument, biblical argument, to verify that the Holy Spirit is a person, is that in the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is susceptible, susceptible to personal mistreatment uh, that only a person can be. For example... Uh, Acts 5 3. Acts chapter 5 and verse number 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And then he will go on to say, You've not lied to man, you've lied to God. But notice that the Holy Spirit can be lied to. You can't lie to a force, you can't lie to a, a piece of wind, or you can't lie mm-hmm. basically. It's a person you lie to. And that's why people held and that's uh, culpable for conniving together to mislead the church and then to claim that they were more generous than they were, quite frankly. So he's susceptible to personal mistreatment of lying. Um, look at Matthew twelve, thirty-one and 32. I think this is a passage that most people will be familiar with. 
Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 says, Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. I mean, imagine that for just a moment. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, God's Son in the flesh, any word against him uh, could be forgiven. But forgiveness against blaspheming the Holy Spirit, attributing his works to the devil, will not be forgiven. Clearly, he can be blasphemed against. You can't blaspheme against a wall. You can blaspheme against a person, right? So clearly that uh, the personal mistreatment that he, uh, the Bible says he can suffer, or susceptible to, indicates you're dealing with a person. You can lie to a person. You can blaspheme a person. You can't blaspheme a force. You can't blaspheme a lie to a, a whatever. The other thing is uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Hebrews 10 and verse 29. 29 says, Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under the foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. The word despite means to insult, okay? Uh, disdain and clearly you can only insult a person and disdain a person quite frankly and that's the indication not only do you trot on the foot Christ and his blood but also you commit uh, this atrocity by insulting and disdaining the Holy Spirit so again that is mistreatment of the Holy Spirit and one of the one I think is very profound is Ephesians 4 30 Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Clearly, you, can, you can't grieve a force, you can't grieve lightning, you can't grieve wind, you can't grieve air, but you can grieve a person. I think the fact that these four um, personal offenses and this four, these four mistreatments are attributed to the Holy Spirit would clearly indicate that we're dealing here with a person. We're not just dealing here with an inanimate or uh, force of power of some kind or some kind of influence. We're dealing with uh, a person. Uh, I find it difficult for anyone to do a thorough study of the, the, the biblical t- doctrine of the Holy Spirit and come to the conclusion that we're not dealing with a person. Uh, that's why the Jehovah's Witness who um, deny the personality of the Holy Spirit in my judgment, those people cannot be saved. I don't see how a person can be saved and deny the person of the Holy Spirit. It's the person of the Holy Spirit that, first of all, convicts you. So to deny that he's a person, uh, I don't know how in the world a person can be saved and deny the, the person of the Holy Spirit. I just don't know how it's possible, quite frankly. And this is a major non-negotiable doctrine of Scripture. It's not something that you can uh, dilly-dally with or... Uh, countenance uh, people holding an opinion that is contrary. This is a fundamental truth that must be held. Uh, I don't think any church should be called a church that denies the personality of the Holy Spirit. Question that has just come in from a listener. Pastor, during the rapture, 
Will the Holy Spirit be removed from his presence here on earth? And if so, how can a person be saved, seen as how the Holy Spirit is required for a person to be saved? But remember, the Holy Spirit has always been a restraining force in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. But he will remove from planet earth in the sense of indwelling the believer. Okay. Okay. It doesn't mean that his presence will not be here. So people can still be of saved. Of course. You cannot be saved apart from the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. But the sense of the indwelling. In other words, we will return back to the Old Testament method. Remember that uh, he was in the. Um, David said, Take not the Holy Spirit from me. The Holy Spirit came upon people and left people, quite frankly. But clearly in the, in the New Testament, Christ said, He will abide with you forever, in the sense that when he, he stays with the believer, but He's not going to depart from the believer. So when He goes up, the believer, He goes with the believer, but His presence will still be here on planet Earth, and He will still be working. God works through His executive power, which is the Holy Spirit on planet Earth during this time and during this dispensation. We have about three minutes left in this episode. Not a whole lot of time to delve into another aspect of the Holy Spirit. But, Pastor, can you talk a little bit about the Christian position that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Divine Trinity? Yeah. Well, look, the, we discover in Scripture uh, that the Godhead, uh, there are three persons within the Godhead. Later on in the one of the programs that we're going to do on the Holy Spirit is we're going to deal with this whole question. The Holy Spirit is God. And we will show you from Scripture why the the, the Bible presents Him as God. And there are seven basic uh, arguments or proofs that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, you'll discover in Acts chapter 5 that the Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter uh, said that... Um, Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit and then he goes on and says you're not lied to man you're lied to God okay. clearly the antecedent of um, there is the of, of God is his Holy Spirit equating the two right so it's clear that he's called God there but it's not just the fact that he's called God in Acts chapter 3 that we attribute to the fact that he is uh, um, the, the third person within the Trinity uh, we also have in Second Corinthians chapter 3, he's called the Lord, which was that spirit. Uh, and clearly it's referring to the Holy Spirit as uh, the spirit in the, in, under the Old Testament economy. So he's called God there, and he's called Lord in Second Corinthians chapter 2. And the word that is Lord there is the same word in the, uh, the Septuagint that refers to Jehovah or Yahweh, as people would use, that's an indication as well that he is, is, is God. So when we talk about he being the third person of the Trinity, we're saying that through Revelation, we discover that there is one God, but this God exists having one essence, but he's manifested in three different persons. This is a great mystery of our faith. We don't have any human parallel, any earthly parallel, uh, but it is a reality that we've discovered. It's not something that we concocted ourselves. We search the scriptures and discover what's. And then we come to the problem where our mind can't seem to grasp and get around how you can have one God, yet three persons within the Godhead, and one essence and one substance. That's the dilemma that men find themselves in. But you've got to decide one or two things. You either abandon that and allow your human reason to embrace a conception of God that falls within your rational understanding, or 
you embrace the revelation knowing that you will not fully comprehend how this works and uh, live by that mystery of faith that is is crucial for us to, uh, to have a, a sense of awe and wonder of God. I've said on this program before, it is that mystery that no one can explain and that complexity with the Godhead that to my mind, that not only is mystifying, but to my mind leads me to know that the Christian God is not like any other God that anybody mentions or can comprehend or can wrap their mind around. Uh, he is infinite. And uh, this in itself creates in me the idea that this has to be the God, uh, if there is a God, uh, because it's beyond our total comprehension, our capacity to, to put in within our rational framework. This in itself is what galvanizes me to know that this is the God of truth and, uh, and to hold to this, this God as revealed in the scriptures. Can a person be saved and not recognize the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul met some people in Ephesus who said we had not so much as heard about the Holy Spirit. And that, of course, at the initial beginning. Um, it's impossible for him to be saved apart from the Holy Spirit. But I think, like everything else, I would not have to be ignorant. And that's Paul, where there needs to be biblical teaching in these different types of matters. So I think the clarification that comes from biblical teaching will help to solve that problem. We Be sure you join us next week's episode as we continue to discuss in greater detail this topic of the Holy Spirit and its role, His role in the Divine Trinity. Have a blessed and safe week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM, If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.